Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 3 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Edward and the Barons' Wars, 1258 to 1267, Part 1. The personal government of Henry III had now lasted for more than five and twenty years. Year after year his weak and nerveless rule had become worse. He gave the nation neither strong government nor popular control. A feeble attempt at despotism had brought about a chronic state of anarchy. Extravagance, nepotism, incompetence had reigned supreme. Many and loud had been the protests that the wiser among the churchmen and the nobler among the baronage had raised against the weak king's misdoings. But the tyranny of Henry was not of that severe and grinding kind which invites immediate and strenuous resistance even at the expense of revolution, and the opposition was wanting in unity of policy and in leaders of capacity. Thus it was that despite the protests of the gallant Richard Marshall, the despairing lamentations of the sainted Edmund of Abingdon, the more manly denunciations of Bishop Grosteste, and the spirited action of Earl Richard of Cornwall, Henry was still able to go on in his evil ways. But new complications now presented themselves, which at last brought about the final crisis. The return of Simon de Montfort from Gascony, thoroughly and forever at feud with his royal brother-in-law, gave the opposition a leader of matchless ability resourcefulness, energy, and daring. The vain attempt of Henry to procure for his second son Edmund the crown of Sicily had imposed a new and crushing burden upon the scanty resources of the kingdom. The popes, who used Edmund as a tool to drive out the heirs of their hated enemy, Frederick of Hohenstaufen, from the Sicilian throne, pledged Henry's credit to the uttermost and sent legates to England to demand the fulfillment of his promises. This led to the famous Parliaments of Barons, 1258. At London, in the spring, Henry was forced to accept a commission of reform. At Oxford, in the summer, a new constitution was drawn up and forced upon the reluctant monarch. By the provisions of Oxford, the whole power of the crown was put into the hands of a committee of fifteen barons. The king's household was set in order, his alien kinsmen and favorites were driven beyond sea, 
and the custody of royal castles entrusted to Englishmen alone. A sweeping scheme of further reformation was drawn up for the future. A few months of vigorous action reduced the would-be despot to a position of utter powerlessness. Edward was now in his twentieth year. It is probable that he was already dimly conscious of his father's deficiencies, but his filial affection and his pride of power alike prompted him to vigorously oppose the audacious designs of the barons. But he soon found himself swept away by the torrent. In vain he set himself against the expulsion of his familiar friends and companions, his uncles, the Lusignans. The barons forced him to take part in the siege of Winchester Castle, from which his Pointevin uncles made their last unavailing resistance. After their expulsion, he gave his reluctant oath to observe the provisions of Oxford. It must have been a bitter humiliation to him to be compelled to accept the appointment of four baronial councillors, specially commissioned to reform his turbulent and disorderly household. But with all his loyalty he could not sacrifice enough to satisfy the exacting affection of his foolish father. A hot quarrel broke out between the king and his son, though it was soon ended by an affectionate reconciliation in the chapter house at Winchester. Yet each outburst of foolish petulance on Henry's part could not but be a fresh inducement to Edward to take up a line of his own. In his passive action in 1258, he had abundant opportunity to win fresh experience. The removal of his Poitevin and Provencal kinsfolk threw him back on more English and more capable advisers. Next year he began to play an independent part. The provisions of Oxford had not satisfied everybody. The revolution had been carried out by a ring of great earls and barons who thought, like the Whigs of the 18th century, that the transference of power to themselves had made the Constitution so perfect that further improvements were not to be hoped for. This was not the view of the Earl of Leicester, but as a new man and a foreigner, his influence was far inferior to that of Richard of Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, whose vast possessions and vigorous personal character made him the natural head of the English aristocracy. But new classes of the community now entered for the first time into the arena of practical politics, the country gentlemen of knightly rank, the natural leaders of the unrepresented masses of the nation, had already begun to get political experience from the new fashion of summoning knights of the shire to treat with the king in general parliaments. They now began to murmur loudly that the old grievances under which the nation had groaned so long were in no wise removed by the change of leaders. These men, the community of the bachelorhood of England, addressed to Edward a long petition for further reform and denounced the barons for breaking their word and working merely for their own good and the harm of the king. Edward answered that he was ready to die for the good of the commonwealth, but that though he had sworn to the provisions with the utmost unwillingness, 
he was resolved to keep his oath. He took up their cause with his usual impetuous ardor, and thus dissociated himself from the mere courtier party. One result of his energetic action was a further, though small, installment of reform in the provisions of Westminster. It is significant that while Henry simply swore to observe these provisions, Edward added to his acceptance an oath that he would advise and aid Earl Simon against all men. Perhaps the most important immediate result of this movement was that it brought Edward into temporary relations with his uncle Montfort. It is hard to say that Edward's object was simply to divide his father's enemies and so break down the slavery to which the crown had been subjected, though no doubt this result did follow from his action. But for a time there was a complete breach between Edward and Henry, a complete harmony of action between the king's son and Earl Simon. Queen Eleanor, who could not forgive her son's desertion of her Provencal kinsman, stirred up Henry against Edward. Gloucester, now Simon's declared enemy, did his best to widen the breach. Something like civil war seemed likely to break out between the followers of Gloucester and those of Edward. For five weeks and more the Londoners sought to keep the peace by closing their gates and guarding them with an armed force. The absence of Henry in France, whither he had gone to negotiate a peace with his brother-in-law Saint-Louis, still further complicated matters. There Henry signed a treaty by which he formally renounced all claims on Normandy and Poitou, thus giving up those pretensions which a few years before he had so solemnly handed over to his son. Simon hotly opposed the peace. It is not likely that Edward was very favorable to it. But both Edward and Simon became parties to the treaty and solemnly renounced their share in the abandoned claims. In the spring of 1260, things got worse. Henry and Eleanor were informed, as they were traveling back to England, that Edward had formed a conspiracy with the barons to depose his father and that the king, on his arrival home, would be forthwith hurried into captivity. The story was an outrageous fiction, but it thoroughly frightened Henry, who lingered on the French shore of the Channel, fearing to cross the Straits. At last, the timely intervention of Richard of Cornwall, now king of the Romans, convinced Henry that his suspicions were exaggerated. Henry was much offended with Edward. On his arrival in London, he sternly refused to see his son, who was lodging with Simon outside the city walls. But the weak head and good heart of the king could not long endure such unnatural estrangement. Do not let my son appear before me, he exclaimed, for if I see him, I shall not be able to refrain from kissing him. After a fortnight, father and son were reconciled. Edward gradually dropped his connections with Simon, though he kept up his feud with Gloucester until the death of Earl Richard in 1262. Disgusted at the troubles that had resulted from his first act of intervention in politics, Edward withdrew for a time from public affairs and again sought distraction in his favorite amusement of the tilt-yard. He now went to France for a great tournament in which 
he came off badly. Again, in 1262, he went abroad for the same purpose. He proved victor in several mock encounters, but in one he received a serious wound. Henry III had long wearied of his inglorious degradation at the hands of the Fifteen, and had for some time been engaged in secret intrigues against the Constitution which he had sworn to observe. His last scruples were removed when two successive popes absolved both him and his son Edward from their oaths. On the 2nd of May, 1262, Henry solemnly proclaimed to the sheriffs the tidings of his absolution from his obligations. But later in the year, on learning that the young Earl Gilbert, who had just succeeded his father in the Gloucester estates and title, had thrown himself warmly on the side of Leicester, Henry again confirmed the provisions. A few months later, he was again at work, undermining the new constitution. By Whitsuntide, 1263, open civil war had broken out. Edward spent the early part of 1263 in Paris, but the tidings came that Llewellyn of Wales had again invaded his Welsh estates, and after hurriedly collecting a body of foreign mercenaries, he hastened back to England and was engaged until Whitsuntide in a fruitless campaign against the Welsh. Meanwhile, the civil war had broken out, hastened by the refusal of the young Earl of Gloucester to take the oath of allegiance to Edward, which Henry, with singular want of tact, now insisted upon imposing upon the magnates. Edward threw himself into Windsor Castle, while Simon raised an army and encamped at Isleworth, a village on the Middlesex bank of the Thames, just below Richmond, hoping thus to separate Edward at Windsor from Henry and Eleanor, who had taken refuge in the Tower of London from the fury of the Londoners, who were nearly all staunch partisans of Earl Simon. One day Eleanor, apparently with the object of joining Edward at Windsor, took boat and attempted to pass underneath London Bridge on her upward journey. But a great mob of the London rabble thronged the bridge, reviled her as a traitress and an adulterous foreigner, and pelted her barge with stones, mud, rotten eggs, and all manner of filth. She was soon forced back to the tower. The incident is mainly memorable for its effect on Edward, who bitterly resented the foul indignities heaped upon Eleanor and became a sworn foe to London and its liberties for the rest of his life. Edward now applied himself with extraordinary dexterity to win over Leicester's followers and succeeded in creating a strong party for himself of which the backbone was the fierce Lord's Marcher of Wales, who might well have looked upon Edward as their natural leader, and who had already fought by his side against Llewellyn. In revenge, Simon forced a close alliance with the Prince of Wales and promised him his daughter as a wife. Thus, Llewellyn fought for the baronial cause, just as his grandfather, Llewellyn ap Jorwerth, had joined the nobles arrayed against John in the first struggle for the charter. Meanwhile, fresh truces were made only to be broken, and fresh parliaments assembled only to be dissolved amidst riot and confusion. Edward's tactics had so far succeeded 
that neither side was strong enough to get the better of the other. At last, in December, all parties agreed to submit their disputes to the arbitration of Saint-Louis. Edward sailed with his father for France, suffering severely during his passage from the storms of December. Early in 1264, the French king, as might have been expected, annulled the provisions and declared on all points in favor of Henry III. Leicester, as might equally have been anticipated, refused to be bound by the arbitration to which he had sworn. On his taking up arms, Edward hurried back to England to defend his father's cause. He was already the practical leader of the royalists, and the outbreak of civil war now forced him still more fully to the front. He alone could take the lead in the king's council, for he alone could form a royalist party. There had been no party for Henry as long as he ruled through foreigners and favorites, any more than there was any party for Charles I in the days of ship money, the bishops' wars, and the first session of the long parliament. Edward did effectually for his father what Hyde and Falkland did less successfully for Charles I. He showed the nation that Earl Simon was not the only reformer and that the mass of the barons were not reformers at all. He upheld a constitutional royalism which allowed for national progress but discouraged revolution. But the bad traditions of long years of misgovernment still claved to his following, and the hot, revengeful fire of youth still colored the political conduct of Edward with personal motives. Despite his gallant fight, he did not this time succeed, and it was well for England that the early failure of Edward preceded his later triumph. The campaign of 1264 was begun by Earl Simon who, half despairing at the threatened break-up of his party through Edward's intrigues, was resolved to conquer or perish. Though all men quit me, he exclaimed, I will remain with my four sons and fight for the good cause which I have sworn to defend for the honor of Holy Church and the welfare of the realm. While Simon himself marshaled the levies of the south, his eldest son Henry operated in the west in conjunction with Llewellyn of Wales, and his second son, Simon, raised a force in the Midlands at Kenilworth. Edward hurried to the west to join his friends, the Lord's Marcher, in the fight against Henry Montfort and Llewellyn. He strove to throw himself into Gloucester Castle, the town which commanded the passage over the Severn being already in the hands of the barons. But though he gained his point, his numbers were too small to enable him to maintain his position, and he was forced to beg for a truce from his cousin. Henry Montfort chivalrously, or rashly, granted an armistice. But on the withdrawal of Henry to Kenilworth, Edward treacherously broke the truce and regained possession of the town. Master of the chief crossing over the lower Severn, he could now turn his attention to the more general campaign. He soon joined his father at Oxford, where he drove out all the masters and scholars who, headed by their Chancellor Thomas of Cantaloupe, were enthusiastic partisans of the popular cause. Thence father and son marched against Northampton, 
where the younger Simon now was. Edward easily captured the town and took his cousin prisoner, having great trouble to save his life in the wild confusion of the storm. He now devastated the earldom of Leicester with fire and sword. But the royal forces were soon called off to the south, where Rochester, the key of Kent, was in danger of falling into the hands of Earl Simon. The king easily relieved Rochester and wandered aimlessly through Kent and Sussex, seeking, though with little success, to win over the hostile sink ports and striving to open communications with Queen Eleanor, who was collecting an army of foreign mercenaries in the Flemish harbors. But his soldiers suffered severely from lack of food and forage, as his troops plodded wearily through the deep lanes and dense copses of the Weald, they were much harassed by Simon's light-armed Welch archers, who lurked in every hedge and thicket and inflicted severe losses upon them. At last the weary host rested at Lewis. Edward took up his quarters in the castle to the north of the town, while his father, with whom was his uncle Richard, king of the Romans, occupied the priory on the southern side of Lewis. Earl Simon had retired from Rochester to the capital, whence he marched south with an army reinforced by a host of Londoners, all fresh and eager for battle, though but little accustomed to warfare. On the 13th of May he slept at Fletching, a village nine miles to the north of Lewis. Thence, early in the morning of the 14th of May, Montfort marched across the South Downs, hoping to surprise the town. Lewis is situated on the right bank of the Ouse, which here makes a bend that almost encircles the town. To the west and north, the South Downs sink gradually down in the form of a natural amphitheater until they form the gap in which the town is built. The army of the barons swept swiftly across the bare-rolling chalk downs, hoping to attack the castle and priory simultaneously. But their movements were discovered, and the royalists poured out of the town, ready to fight out the battle upon the open plain. Simon fixed his standard upon the hill, hoping that its conspicuous position would tempt the royalist attack. But while he gathered the mass of his army on the right wing, which operated from the west against the defenders of the priory. He massed around the standard the untrained, though enthusiastic, Londoners. All turned out as Simon had expected. Edward, the real general of the royalists, at once fell into the trap, and charged with the flower of the host, the dense masses grouped around the earl's standard. With him was his gallant cousin Henry of Almaine. The Londoners were smitten with panic and fled in confusion, while Edward, delighted to revenge on the citizens the insults they had heaped upon his mother, pursued them vigorously for four miles, giving no quarter and inflicting terrible losses upon them. At last, tired out with slaughter, his weary troops marched back into Lewis. But they found in their absence Earl Simon had forced the royal positions captured the priory in which the king had taken up his quarters, and driven the king of the Romans to take refuge in a mill where he was soon forced to surrender. Edward's troops now dispersed in panic. Next day the Mies of Lewis was drawn up, 
by which the provisions of Oxford were renewed, and Henry again forced to delegate his power to a baronial committee. One of the articles provided that Edward and Henry of Almain were to be given up as hostages for the good behavior of the Lord's Marcher, who were still in arms in the West. On the 16th of May, Edward surrendered. He and his cousin were put under the care of Henri Montfort, who shut them up at Dover and treated them as captives rather than hostages, and less honorably than was becoming. Edward was afterwards removed to Kenilworth, where his aunt, the Countess of Leicester, seems to have dealt with him more considerately than her son. End of Section 3 Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.